This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Now we turn to our very wonderful speaker, Alexandra Horowitz. Uh, uh, before I, I read anything formal, I have to tell you that I, I met Alexandra um, at a small workshop that we both attended a couple of, well, more than a few years ago, three years ago probably, and um, she and her husband, and I was immediately captivated by their intellect. Uh, When I heard her speak, uh, give her formal presentation at this workshop, I knew I was really in the presence of a very special intellect, a really penetrating mind Uh, which was a mind able to express a lot of subtle ideas in extremely accessible language. And she writes the way she speaks, she speaks the way she writes, and uh, it's all very beautiful, completely comprehensible, and revealing. So I, I know you're going to enjoy her. Alexandra Horowitz is a well-known scientist in animal cognition. Her research centers on the behavior and cognition of the domestic dog with a focus on dyadic play, metacognition, olfactory perception, and the behaviors implicated in anthropomorphisms of dogs. In addition to the enormously successful Inside of a Dog, which spent 63 weeks as a New York Times bestseller, Her second book, On Looking, Eleven Walks with Expert Eyes, was published just this January. Horowitz has also published extensively in the academic world with articles appearing in Social Justice Research, Learning and Behavior, Animal Cognition, and the Encyclopedia of Animal Rights and Animal Welfare, among other publications. She's produced a number of popular articles for the New York Times, Her work has been covered in The New Yorker, The Chicago Tribune, and Time magazine. Horowitz earned her BA in philosophy at the University of Pennsylvania and a PhD in cognitive science at the University of California, San Diego. She's taught at Barnard College of Columbia University since 2004 and is currently adjunct associate professor of psychology there. She lives in New York City with her husband, son, and her dogs, Upton and Finnegan. In today's lecture, Alexandra Horowitz will discuss how domestic dogs, Canis familiaris, have insinuated themselves into our society and imagination. Having been long present in our art and narratives, dogs are now ubiquitous in American homes. She will describe the dog's historical and contemporary role, attributions made to the dogs, and will propose an alternative empirical approach to considering dogs. Join me in giving a warm welcome to Alexandra Horowitz. And we'll have a, a short question and answer period after her talk. Okay. <laughs> Thank you so much, Stanley. Hello. Uh, I should like to express my appreciation to the Forster Lecture Committee and to Stanley Brandis and Dean Andrew Seri and Chancellor Robert Bergenu uh, for the invitation to come and speak before you today. As Stanley says, I'm a researcher of the domestic dog, Canis familiaris. And as observer of their behavior in natural context as they interact with conspecifics or with humans or in experimental context as they solve problems that we have set them, I'm interested in animal mind. And this research is mostly about making inferences from the cognition of the cognition of the members of the species from their behavior. Ultimately, I spend a disproportionate amount of my time videotaping dogs coding the behavior from videotapes of dogs or patting dogs in appreciation for letting me videotape them. These biographical facts, um, viewed in the context of the topic of this lecture series, may explain the upthrust of my eyebrows on my forehead after I was invited to speak here. For 
phrases immortality of the soul and domestic dogs do not often find themselves in the same academic journals. Indeed, the study of immortal soul and the study of dogs seem on first pass not to bear on one another at all. But of course, there's plenty of precedent for discussing the possibility of the immortal souls of dogs or of any animal. There's been furious debate on the topic, although the fury has been stretched out over centuries. In ancient Egypt, dogs and souls were intertwined. Depictions of Anubis, this dog-headed jackal or other canid, often decorated tombs as a guide of deceased human souls into the immortal realm. Mesoamerican cultures repeated this motif, leaving pottery figures of dogs within burial sites as chaperones of human spirits to the underworld. But was the dog himself a traveler to that selfsame underworld? Surely not. In ancient Greece, against the backdrop of Plato's reasoning immortal soul, the Aristotelian take on the soul was more generous, implicating that which can sense and move as ensouled. Certainly dogs were included. So also would have been single-celled organisms like paramecium, which flexibly react to their environments, or the mimosa pudica, a sensitive plant, which responds in real time to being touched, as here from top to bottom. Immortality for plant or dog was another question. More recently, and most prominently from the vantage of contemporary science, was Descartes' dualism, segregating human animals from non-human animals with the claim that only humans have a soul not liable to die with the body, thus immortal. To animals, he granted souls, but a material soul, so intertwixed with body that it would die when the body dies. Of course, the extension of Descartes' claim that the immortal soul was restricted to humans was that the mortal soul of animals was shortly interpreted to be no sort of soul at all. Quite rapidly, one transitions from this posture to reducing animals to simple machinery, thus incapable of feelings, including pain. Animals were hence subjected to incredibly brutal treatment under the guise of this philosophy. Today, by contrast, that many current pet owners believe in the availability of the afterlife for their animals is implied by a phenomenon Stanley Brandis has recently drawn our attention to again, the development and success of pet cemeteries, <laughs> such as New York's Hartsdale Pet Cemetery and Paris's Cimetière des Chiens. Each features inscribed monuments on the grave sites, formal burials, and pastoral services. Surely those who have buried their animals thusly are moved to do so by, at minimum, their sense of the continued importance of the animal's fate after death. Their sense of the, and often as when a monument reads, our friend forever, or see you later, their anticipation that they will indeed see them later. We are thus confronted with a range of opinions on the matter at hand. The insistence that animals have immortal souls, that animals have souls but not immortal ones, and that animals have neither souls nor are they immortal. If you're keeping track, that leaves us one option undiscussed, and it will be my tack. To suggest that the question of soul is not an answerable one, but that indeed dogs are immortal. To clarify, I want to suggest that the question of the soulfulness of the animal is not the question we should be asking. To be sure, there's precedent for asking questions of this sort. For example, much current research, research in um, non-human animals comes from comparative psychology, which asks questions cast in a similar mold. Have any animals the intelligence of humans? Do they feel the emotions that we do? Answers are discoverable. Why, yes, they perform admirably like humans on this test of problem solving. Or, no, they do not succeed at being quite human at this task of social cognition. But with comparison to humans, or to what humans value as our measure, this approach patently circumscribes what we are able to see in non-human animals. It delimits the abilities they have to those which mirror ours curbs our imagination from extending outside our humanness. The investigation ends before it even gets going. It is reminiscent of the feigned exercise in exploration and knowledge gathering that might be called the safari phenomenon, 
gone to seek animals, the patient observer looking out over a savanna will finally see a majestic creature approaching, then another, then a herd. We tend to ask, what is that? Its identification, a greater kudu, is met with head nods and aborts most further inquiry. We move on, no closer to understanding the creatures we have spotted. They have been named. Similarly, designation of the chimp as like humans in these ways or the rock dove as most unlike humans in these other ways brings us no closer to understanding chimp nor dove. I think the aim of scientific inquiry into animals should be, by contrast, animal-centered, unpacking what their actual experience is. The question, then, of the soul of the dog strikes me as an illustrative example of asking the wrong question of the dog. Having established or determined or living in the hope that we have immortal souls ourselves, we turn to the pup at our feet and wonder it at them. I do not mean by calling this the wrong question that that question is not germane because the dog has no soul. Instead, it's not relevant to the dog because of his dogness. In the first part, the lines share, as it were, of my lecture, I'll expand upon this point and try to say something about what dogness amounts to and just how and why we've missed it. Following that, I will suggest, putting aside the question of the dog's soulful status, that the dog is in many ways immortal. For the concern with immortality is transparently the interest in persistence, that our essence, that those things we value, engage in, or that we define ourselves through our interactions with, can live on in some sense after we or they die. In the final part of this lecture, I'll describe how dogs have attained immortality through the roles they play or have played and our perception of them in contemporary society. I will begin, though, with the claim, as it has some currency these days, that dogs have souls. What could be meant by that claim? It's likely that the maker of this pronouncement is certainly confident in his belief that persons have souls and has extended the same nature to his canid companion. Historically, what the soul is has been changeable, spiritual, immaterial, essential, some component of mental experience. Without resolving this question, as my research uh, with animals addresses the fact of and content of mental experience, that's the part I'll focus on. And as an animal researcher interested in making claims about ability based on behavior, any prior attribution made to an animal is approached with caution and an interest in deconstruction. What outward evidence is there of the existence or non-existence of the thing attributed, the thing about the animal to which we point as evidence of our claim? For instance, what behaviors could induce people to believe that dogs have souls? Consider the case of Umka. Umka is a female Brussels griffon. Members of this breed, one of the hundreds of breeds for which there is a national standard, restricting matings to maintain a genetically ideal line, are expected to be under 10 pounds and have faces with wide-set eyes, long eyelashes, a diminutive nose, and an underbite. These features are intended to, in the words of the American Kennel Club standard, lend the dog an almost human expression although note that, according to the AKC, a wry mouth is a serious fault. In 2011, Umka was the subject of a lawsuit filed by her owner against Raising Rover LTD, a pet store which sold Umka to her for $1,600. Shortly after purchasing Umka, her new owner became aware of various serious health issues in the then puppy. Umka underwent costly surgery to try to correct what was discovered to be an inherited malformation of her hip sockets and knee bones. In the complaint, the attorney for Umka's owner charges that even after the first operation to repair her knee, Umka cannot engage in regular activities a puppy should engage in, such as running around. At the time of the filing, Umka was waiting for her next operation for her other knee. Plaintiff requests humanity for Umka, the complaint states. It continues, Umka is a living soul with a heart. She feels love and pain. In some ways, Umka is simply, under the terms of our current law, a non-conforming good, defective, unfit. Pets are considered goods. They are property. 
and may be subject under warranty to meeting certain specifications. In this case of a puppy who can engage in puppy-like activities such as running, jumping, leaping, playing. But above and beyond this, the fact of Umka's soul was invoked. She could not experience the joys and sorrows of life as other puppies, or indeed we do. Do dogs experience love and pain? Have they the capacity? Neurologically, persons and dogs, indeed all other mammals, are equipped with nociceptors, pain receptors, and have a central nervous system that receives information about and responds to pain. All move to avoid painful stimuli. All show behaviors sufficient to demonstrate that they experience pain. The answer to the question of pain is affirmative. Next, while love would perhaps be called affiliative behavior in scholarly animal research contexts, the very fact of affiliative, affectionate behavior and bond forming is widely acknowledged as a premise of social species. It's not a stretch to say dogs love too. There is some evidence for her soulfulness as defined then, at least in terms of pain. Umka is unable to leap on the furniture without whimpering, cannot run with casts on her legs, and generally does not engage in other puppy-typical activities. We are given no evidence of Umka's love. It is assumed to materialize toward the owner just when the owner materializes in the dog's life. But the statement that Umka is a living soul is not presented as being subject to examination. It is a statement of conviction. The issue for the asserters is not whether or not they are right in their assertion. It is how ought we act given this self-evident fact. Before Umka could not leap, could not run, or before she was even acquainted with her adopter, she was imbued with these traits by her owner and by most dog owners, as well as by all manner of thinkers on the condition of animals. But by what authority are we given this insight into the dog's soulfulness or even any internal state? How do we know about this dog or any dog's subjective experience? We do not. Umka and the question of her being a living soul stand as example of something that is a more general concern of mine as a researcher of the behavior of such a common and familiar animal. We, we livers with dogs, we already believe we know everything about the animal, a priori. Prior to meeting a dog, prior to living with a dog, prior to looking at a dog, we fail to use the one mechanism readily available to us, asking questions of a dog's capacities and attributes and looking for answers in the dog's behavior. And on those occasions when we do ask questions, we often ask the wrong questions of dogs. We ask person questions of dogs. This is called anthropomorphizing, but I want to be neutral on whether we are correct or not in our attributions. I simply suggest that what we do by assigning the dog soulful status or any other set of perfunctory attributes is abort inquiry about the dog, obscure our view of the dog, stop consideration even of the dog in front of us. Let us then reconsider the nature of this animal. Who is the dog? The domestic dog is a creature of some paradox in its life among humans. We breed dogs for sameness, but celebrate their difference. They are kept, yet they are regularly abandoned. We guide them and are guided by them. We name one, yet anonymously euthanize millions of others. They have the legal status of property, but we endow them with agency. They want, they choose, they demand, they insist. We sense their animalism, feeding them bones, yet enforce an ersatz humanness, dressing them in raincoats, celebrating birthdays. We cut their ears to be more like wild canids, but in breeding, shorten their faces to be more like primates. We speak of their gender, yet regulate their sex. The dog is descended from an ancestor of the present-day wolf, a wolf-like creature from which the dog diverged some thousands of years ago. The matter of how many thousands and in what manner the divergence came is subject to some theorizing. But the best evidence is this. About 14,000 years ago, in a few areas around the world, 
Homo sapiens became less nomadic, created settlements, and came into contact with Canis lupus. The connection for the two species was initially garbage. Namely, the food remnants that humans were leaving outside those new settlements. In essence, this theory goes, humans were creating a new ecological niche around those waste piles. Some wolves self-selected. Perhaps some had a lower reactivity around humans. And they began scavenging food from these dumps. One way or another, these proto-dogs worked their way into the settlements, where they were tolerated and perhaps used once in a while as food. This is uh, early uh, archaeological evidence of our coexistence from a northern Israel gravesite of 12,000 years ago, an individual buried with a hand over the body of a five-month-old puppy. Artificial selection, wherein humans controlled the breeding of the animals, took off some time thereafter, based on human preference for behaviors, guarding, herding, hunting, and continued for thousands of years. Implicitly, we may have been selecting by preferring certain traits as well, physical traits. For instance, following Conrad Lorenz, our lab has showed that, in some, of the, that some of the neotenous characteristics typical of children, big eyes, large cheeks, are preferred in dogs. The result is a redirection to dogs of the feelings of attachment typically prompted by the infant bearers of these traits. And two, those dogs are proto-dogs which looked at us, given the impression of a shared gaze, the precondition in some sense for a conversation, were certainly selected. Their ancestors now, the dogs of the 21st century, are magnificent examples of gaze-sharing creatures, nearly human and I use that intentionally, as all studies confirm their ability to use our gaze to get information and interpret our communicative signals. Here is some hint to how we began to see dogs in our image. They began to mind us and reflect us. Quite late in this domestication story, the 19th century, the selection process turned a corner. Breeding proceeded based not on preferences for particular based not on preferences for behavior, but particular constellations of physical traits, which began to be reified as purebreds, a concept that didn't exist before this time. Even more than before, dogs were designed to suit our fancy. This tale of domestication is usually told through archaeology or genetics, but one might look at dogs' representation in art as instructive as well, the story of how we have thought of dogs pinned on the page. What one sees is the rise of a particular contemporary view of who dogs are. The dog as confidant, companion, bearer of secrets and sharer of bed, sporting sweaters and ribbons. Now, I'm not looking here at the symbolism of the dogs in these images, nor the qualities they embodied, but at their actual depiction, a kind of ethologist at the museum approach. So you will, I hope, excuse my riding roughshod over the art historical or scriptural context of these images. Many early images cast dogs thusly, the Bayeux tapestry from the 11th century, behaving as hunters, guards, flushers, or retrievers of game. Just as importantly, on the canvas, they were at the side of the scene, Participants, but not principals. They then began sneaking into domestic scenes. Underfoot. Into street scenes, as with Rembrandt's Good Samaritan. Here, becoming a dog imbued image. Nice bit of naturalism there in his excretal posture. And into church minding a column, and popping up almost in people's stead, as in these Titian scenes showing Venus attended to by Cupid and a lute player or a dog. 
Not long thereafter, they trotted from the side of the canvas to be featured with us centrally in the early 17th century and in the 18th. Then as show breeding began, as objects of fancy, still objects, note, part of a still life, objects collected by breeders. And finally, most recently, from Darwin's time onward, they took over the canvas. Center stage, the dog is a subject for himself. The portrayed, no longer figurative or sidelined. This is when they became individuals for us. As subjects of portraits, they are extended the capacities of human subjects. Indeed, they are our capacities, transplanted, furred, though often diminished. We assign to the dog all manner of human attributes. Domestication made the dog easy to anthropomorphize, to see as human-like, though their shared genetic ancestry with Homo sapiens is millions of years more ancient than that with Canis lupus. Indeed, domestication itself might be considered a process of making the animal more anthropomorphizable. The result of thousands of generations of selective breeding is an animal who looks to us and, we imagine, understands us. He poses and it reads as familiar emotion. We call them proud, faithful, jealous, guilty, feel sure that they are amazed or content, confused or empathetic. Charles Darwin wrote of his dogs as variously magnanimous and sensible, shameful and modest. I dare you to attribute nothing to some of these faces. (laughs) This anthropomorphizing is a natural human tendency. Just as young children spontaneously attribute life to inanimate objects, practicing animism in an early attempt to make sense of the sensory chaos of the environment, Anthropomorphism may have arisen in our species as a strategy to make predictable an unpredictable world. It is notable that in addition to the animistic approaches that come naturally to children, we steep childhood in anthropomorphisms, recapitulating in ontogeny our phylogeny. Children's books are replete with animals clothed and shod and with human concerns and foibles. The cat has a hat. The fox has socks. Bunnies run away. Pigeons yearn to drive the bus. Frogs are friends with toads. This cavalier behatting and experience attributing we drum into our children is a repetition and an extension of the mythology our species long ago created. In particular, early Homo sapiens may have found anthropomorphisms useful to anticipate and interpret the behavior of non-human animals especially ascribing motivations and desires which would distinguish the behavior of those animals from whom one might want to flee from those in whom one sees a meal. Today, some 75 million dogs live among us in two of five U.S. households. They are ubiquitous and underfoot, familial and familiar. We humans are no longer attempting to predict the behavior of the animal we inexplicably find in our cave but we retain the vocabulary developed to do so. In my research, I question the anthropomorphisms we make of dogs. I attempt to deconstruct them in order to determine both what has prompted us to make these attributions and if, when one looks closely at the behavior that has prompted it, the attributions are valid or sound. But what is problematic about these attributions after all, one might ask? Surely their endurance marks them as at least not irreparably harmful in explaining animal behavior. I am concerned with three effects, a perverting, a diverting, and a subverting. 
First, the perverting. In much of Europe, from the later Middle Ages until the 18th century, anthropomorphisms to animals had an extraordinary result. Animals were held accountable for their actions. In particular, animals were tried and punished, often by death, for all manner of infractions and trespasses against humans and human property, from thievery to felonious intent and murder. In each case, as detailed by E.P. Evans, the defendants were represented by counsel, precedent was cited, and in most cases, a judge returned a guilty verdict, delivered with solemnity and often ceremony by a specially appointed official. The animals so convicted included flies, horse flies, gadflies, Spanish flies, grasshoppers, locusts, and caterpillars, worms, snails, and weevils, mice, cows, and horses, doves and roosters, dogs, wolves, and dolphins, none so frequently as the pig. For instance, in 1386 in Falaise in northwestern France, a sow was sentenced to be mangled in her head and forelegs and then to be hanged for having torn the face and arms of a child and thus caused his death. The execution was a public event, subsidized by the city, and for the occasion the sow was dressed in men's clothes and the hangman was given, it was noted, new gloves. In 1519, what is now Austria initiated criminal proceedings against the moles or field mice, which species was not determined, which were accused of damaging crops by burrowing and throwing up the earth so that neither grass nor green thing could grow. A defense attorney was assigned, but the prosecuting attorney presented a formidable list of witnesses, and the presiding judge sentenced the animals to death, but gave safe conduct for 14 days to the pregnant and infant moles. This kind of radical extension of responsibility to non-humans, based on an assumption that it is appropriate that they bear that responsibility, predates the Middle Ages. A Roman custom for many years had a dog crucified each year on the anniversary of the day that a local dog did not bark upon the arrival of invading Gauls. The responsibility even extended to inanimate non-humans, In ancient Greece, a special court tried inanimate objects such as stones and beams that had caused human death. A statue that tumbled onto and killed a passerby was punished for murder by being thrown into the sea. In Russia, the bell which pealed gleefully, despite the recent assassination of a royal figure, was convicted with treason and sent to Siberia. This kind of perversion of the impulse to anthropomorphize is by no means an inevitable consequence, simply a possible one. It is not entirely in our distant past. The circus elephant Topsy, who in 1903 was electrocuted in a gruesome faction after killing a number of her abusive trainers, stands a stark reminder that we are not as far from these animal trials as we might like to think. And it could be argued when faced with pet dogs who are labeled aggressive and in fact have been aggressors, our societal response is often more perfunctory than our medieval forebears had been. We kill them and spare the trial. The diverting. A far more common result of making attributions to animals is simply consequent misinterpretation of their behavior. In private homes with dogs, for instance, these misunderstandings abound. While the consequences are not as dramatic as those that befell the sow in Feliz in 1386, they are appreciable. For instance, it's widely held that dogs feel guilt. One assumes in the way that humans may without the intrapsychic Freudian conflict. Three quarters of dog owners surveyed in one study expressed the belief that dogs experience this self-conscious evaluative emotion. Another study found dog owners confidently asserting that their charges understand the rules of the household. The guilty look that inspires these assessments, including elements such as pressing the ears back, averting the eyes, or lowering the head, also dropping the tail, wagging low and quickly, and so forth, is recognized by owners and non-owners alike. No less an observer of animal behavior than Conrad Lorenz concluded from the guilty look that we can assume with certainty that it hides a guilty conscience. 
The anthropomorphism here is the step from the dogs looking guiltily to the dogs feeling guilty. That dogs realize when they have done something wrong or inappropriate. Owners are presuming mens rea. A guilty look indicates a guilty mind. Moving from the outward appearance of, of, the, of the animal to a confident claim about the animal's understanding. In our research, we have shown that this confidence is unwarranted. In a simple experiment, we demonstrated that dogs did not show more guilty look when they did something for which they might feel guilt, disobeying an owner, for instance. They didn't show more than when they hadn't disobeyed. Ah, but when we misled owners into thinking their dogs had eaten a treat forbidden to them whilst the owners were out of the room, and the owners scolded the dog for this apparent defiance, the dog's rate of the guilty look shot up. It was much higher than when we misled the owners inversely into thinking their actually disobeying pups had obeyed. The dog's obedience or disobedience turned out to have no effect on the likelihood that the dog showed the guilty look, nor could owners reliably predict what the dog had done by assessing the look. The look marks not guilt on the dog's part, but the perception of guilt on the owner's part. Of course, I am and the data are agnostic about whether dogs do actually experience guilt in some way. They may, certainly. One can plainly see a negative emotional state manifest in the dog. Although the behavior which prompts our belief is simply due to factors not related to their misgivings about their misdeeds. So while maintaining my agnosticism, I reject the anthropomorphism as asserted. To assume dogs feel the emotion of guilt is to presume apprehension that their wrongdoings are violative of a particular code of behavior and leads inevitably to punishment befitting that apprehension. This punishment is inappropriate in light of the evidence. The claim as it stands is unsupportable. Is this analysis diminishing of the dog's capacities? Replacing human emotive language with the jargon of animal behavior unnecessarily? I would object to this charge. In this experimental context, the capacity of the dog was in full evidence. Dogs observe their people with great care, learn the associations appropriate to the context, and then apply from their expressive toolbox a look which is likely to result in less punishment for them. It is a rather becoming look. Indeed, dogs discover that they will be more lightly punished if one is upfront about displaying guiltily. <laughs> Our preemptive assertions about them divert us from seeing what has actually been learned, from seeing their actual capacities. So too with other animals. An animal's ubiquity leads to claims of its ordinariness, with its depreciating assumptions. Discovery of the little brown bat's echolocation ability was delayed because it was considered absurd that bats might be navigating with their ears, let alone emitting the high-frequency sounds by which echo they would so navigate, as Donald Griffin discovered only 70 years ago. That a homing pigeon might detect the magnetic fields of the earth was thought preposterous. A rat smells in stereo but we can only think of their elimination as a species. Our insistence on viewing animals through a prism that is based on our own abilities, or more pointedly, our lack of abilities, has an astonishing limiting effect on what we see. Finally, the subverting. Remembering that anthropomorphisms are, at best, unproven assumptions. Reliance on unproven assumptions, if using them as justification for, say, fair treatment of animals or animal rights, could backfire, undermining the cause. For our pure eagerness to see intelligence, emotional sophistication, or other forms of humanness in other animals is matched by our profound skepticism if it appears that we've been tricked into believing in an ability which is not there. I consider this a kind of clever Hans byproduct. Hans, of course, was a horse of a century ago owned by a German school teacher whose action in influenced the course of animal cognition research for that subsequent century. His sobriquet, clever Hans, has come to stand for what he could not do 
and also as a caution against overattributions to animals. For Hans, his owner claimed, could count. Shown an arithmetic problem on a blackboard, he tapped the sum with his hoof. In this way, Hans could also spell, recognize colors, could identify musical intervals and German coins, and he could name the days of the calendar. Such was the tenor of the time that discovery of these presumed latent abilities of horses demonstrated by Hans created a small furor. While Hans had, of course, been trained to hoof count or spell, he was able to generalize, solve novel problems, and answer questions delivered by new people. For a time, it looked as though there was no other explanation but that a horse was doing arithmetic. Finally, the trick, an inadvertent trick, unknown even to Hans's owner, was discovered by a psychologist named Funkst. When the person asking the question did not himself know the answer, Hans was wildly wrong. Hans was not actually doing mathematics or reading German, but was instead extremely focused on his questioner's posture and breath, such that a relaxation of the shoulders, a raise of the eyebrows, or a widening of the nostrils served as cue that he had tapped the correct answer. Whereby, the pendulum of opinion swung the other way, despite the efforts of Funkst to highlight Hans's astute body-reading abilities. The prevailing conclusion about Hans was not that was not that not only was he not doing arithmetic, but that he was without mental capacity, a Cartesian automaton. Not that the horse would make a very good police detective or poker player. Not that the horse had a fantastic ability to notice what were to the crowds of people who had come to watch him perform indiscernible muscle movements and endow them with meaning. Feeling duped, we take absence of human skill for absence of any skill. Hans retired, but his legacy remains. The field of animal cognition has developed in response to the clever Hans phenomenon, a constant reminder to find the simplest explanation, putting aside whether it is wrong, of what an animal is doing. Should I have succeeded in making you feel imperiled by our anthropomorphisms, I would be remiss were I not to offer an alternative approach. We are not left with no way to understand or connect to animals without our overweening attributions. For animals are regularly demonstrating for us just what they're able to do, giving us hints at their experience. It remains only for us to figure out how to look. To do that, I will return briefly to art. There is a class of art featuring a technique and product known as anamorphosis. The image is rendered so as to be visible, comprehensible, from an oblique vantage, not a straight-on, full frontal perspective. As in, famously, Holbein's The Ambassadors of 1533. The anamorphic image, here the splash along the bottom of the painting, may first seem unintelligible, skewed, meaningless, but gains coherence on viewing it on sidelong approach. The portrait was to be hung along a staircase, and the skull becomes intelligible from that vantage. But the human tendency is to first loiter with the skewed image. And as with most things we encounter that we find difficult, try to discover some meaning in, way, in what might actually be meaningless. Similarly, this gallery's lettering choice seems intentionally opaque, unreadable, until one comes at it the direction most gallery goers would from the corner of the block. I encourage a similar sidelong eccentric approach to dog behavior, not just looking at them from the side, as it were, which would just give us an image of the dog's flank, but instead of our offhand observations of the dog in front of us, observing the dog as though he is unknown, not yet understood. If the dog is read anamorphically, we see how our role, the role of the observer of and considerer of dogs, is part of the active construction of who they are. What we find is that we've been caught in a way of looking at dogs which obstructs a genuine understanding of them, what the German biologist Jakob von Oxkull called the Umwelt of the animal, 
the self-world, wrought of those things in the environment which can be sensed by and are salient to the animal. Just the imagining of the perceptual world alone is enough to get a quite different picture of what, say, a dog's behavior indicates. For instance, all that gazing at us, all that eye contact. While real, while a mutual retina-exciting activity, is also an occasion when the dog's nose is pointed in our direction. And for dogs, olfaction is the primary sense, the way to perceive, understand, and organize his world. He is looking, surely, but he is more smelling. The expansive nasal anatomy of Canis familiaris attests to this, with hundreds of millions more olfactory cells in their nose than have humans, as well as their corresponding olfactory-biased cortex. And quite visibly, their mode of olfactory investigation attests to this. Dogs sniff at the rate of two to three hertz, two to three snapshots a second of the olfactory world. Dogs sniff into the breeze, into the fur along a fellow dog's haunches, into the corners of our eyes, which corners in dogs release pheromones, along besplattered fire hydrants and fence posts. We ignore, diminish, even discourage this behavior. But it is there to see. And by watching sniffing very carefully using flow visualization techniques, researchers have extended our knowledge of what is happening at those moments. For instance, the canine nostril sends expired air out through the side slits, which allows for near simultaneous sniffing and expiring. These expirations function as what are called turbulent canine nostril air jets, making any nearby odorant molecules airborne and pushing more smelly stuff into the nose. The dog's world is olfactory. Want to ask, what is the experience of the dog? What is his essence? Begin and build from there. Instead of deploying our visual, cognitive, and spiritual language onto them. The dog's leash, tethering him to our side, circumscribes who can be at the end of it. Finally, to return to the proposal with which I began, the immortality of dogs, I have proof of that. Dogs live on after they have died. After publishing a book on the scientific inquiry into the minds of dogs, into the question of the dog's umwelt four years ago, I began receiving letters, emails usually, from readers. I have received several hundreds of these letters, sharing the reader's experience of appreciation for, sometimes lack of appreciation of the book, or asking a question about why their dog rolls in smelly things he finds in the park. Most also include something else, a photo of their dog. In many cases, it is a photo of a deceased dog whose life prompted them to pick up this book, read it, report to me about it, and to share a few stories from their dog's life. These dogs are immortal. I posit that what concerns us when we think about the immortality of souls is, for the most part, the immortality bit, the keeping on past death. Were it one's soul, one's body, or one's left eyebrow that continued on indefinitely, it would be the same to us. The indefinite us, that unbroken continuity, is the crux of the matter. With humans, we grant this immortality to each other through commemoration, through reputation, through memory. So too do we memorialize our dogs. We remember them, capture their images in pocket-sized photos. We write of them. When still alive, there is a way in which dogs do not act as if bounded by time. 
even as we watch them age and see them through illness. For their joy at reunion with their owners is constant, were one absent a day or a month. Their willingness to appear to, listen to, or comfort us does not waver. They do not collect record of our faults, our disorders, or meanness, but keep steady company. We see them mirror us in the mirror of our imagination, our idealized selves. Their fidelity to us is not diminished by the simple fact of death. To have granted the dogs this immortality, one might suggest, is paradoxical. It is but another anthropomorphism, just of the sort which I reject. But a difference can be marked. Wittgenstein, though speaking not of dogs, said, My attitude toward him is an attitude toward a soul. I am not of the opinion that he has a soul. I am concerned with our opinions about dogs, matters which can be found to be sound or unsound. At the same time, I strike a fully attributive attitude toward them. I feel about them and treat them as though they feel pride, pleasure, love. Testing my opinions can inform my attitudes, to be sure, but opinions do not determine the significance of the thing. We should extend our compassion and respect to dogs, soul or no. Their differences do not grant us the right to dominate, diminish, or destroy them. So I challenge us thusly, step back from the distorted image of the animal, from the human vantage. The measure of the dog ought not be man. Look from the side and see that something else is there, the naturalized creature, the dog. He is probably looking right back at you. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.